0: Hello, and welcome to the Pondering Scripture Podcast, where we'll open God's Word and let Him guide our lives. I'm your host, Jeremiah Cox. We continue our study of James chapter four, remembering they're being reproved of their worldliness, and now they're being called to repentance. They were friends of the world, and therefore were enemies of God. But verse six continues, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. I want to focus on verses 6 through 10 that we just read for this episode of Pondering Scripture as we continue our study of James chapter 4. It says He gives more grace. I think that we're all very familiar with the concept of grace. It is a fundamental principle to Christianity and to the gospel plan of salvation. God's grace bestowed upon man is something we do not deserve, and it restores our favor with Him, restores relationship with Him. But while Paul's concept of grace would more directly allude to the gift of salvation in Christ's sacrifice, sometimes grace in Scripture is simply indicating divine favor in general in any way. And I think that's what we see here in James chapter 4. Consider back in verse 2 when he's addressing their worldliness. He said, "'You lust and do not have.'" You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And so they're trying to obtain something. They're trying to get something. To the extent of some of them, they were asking God, but then they weren't receiving because they were asking Him with ulterior motives, wanting ultimately to serve their own pleasures, than to serve God and His His children, their brethren. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of Lights, first chapter of James in verse 17. That's something they understood. And so they're seeking favor from God in a general way. God gives to His children everything we need, and that's His favor upon us. He watches out for us, and He makes sure that we're doing well. And that avenue of prayer is... God's tools that he's given to us where we can communicate to him. He communicates to us through his word and we communicate to him through prayer. And and sometimes we ask him for things. We're seeking his favor. We're seeking his attention, if you will. But here in the first five verses, he's indicating that they are not obtaining favor from the Lord because of their worldliness. You're friend with the world and If you're a friend of the world, you're fond of worldly things, of of these physical pleasures, then you're going to be at enmity with God and therefore God's enemy. God doesn't help His enemies out. God isn't one which looks on His enemies in a way of favor. And so they're seeking favor from God, but they are not receiving that favor from God because of their worldliness. They are at odds with God. But verse 6 continues with a positive outlook on this. It's not that you are without any hope of reconciliation. It's not that your worldly mindset has completely cut you off from any possibility of being with God, although it certainly has, to this point, cut you off from God, you're His enemy. He gives more grace. God wants to give us His favor. He wants to show us His love. And he's never stingy with his favor, with his love. He wants us to do well. He wants us to be in the position we need to be in, ultimately, to be found with him in eternity. He gives more grace. There's always an abundance of grace. And when we're not receiving his favor in whatever category, it's not because it's lacking. He doesn't have enough to give or he's not willing to give. It's because we haven't met his conditions, which is what he continues to say. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why, why aren't you receiving the things you ask for well? Because you ask that you may spend it on your pleasures. You're, you're asking with a sense of pride. It's about me. It's not about God. It's about me. It's not about my brethren. You see, if we ask God, He's faithful and just to give us the things we ask of Him. He is, as Jesus describes in Matthew 7 and verse 11, is even better than earthly fathers. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? but he won't give to those who are proud, but to those who are humble. He'll resist those who are proud, but he gives favor or grace to the humble. He aids and and helps those who are humbled before him. You know, James has already discussed this humility to a degree. Back in chapter 1 of his epistle in verse 21, he said, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And And that goes back to the end of chapter 3 with the concept of the worldly wisdom versus wisdom from above. That humility of chapter 1 and verse 21 is that humility which accepts God's wisdom in His word without disputing or resisting. In other words, God's ways are better than my ways, and, and I want to serve God in His ways. And That's the humility God's calling to in verse 6, and we'll see that as we address verses 7 through 10. You're living for yourself in the world, and, and while you may have part of yourself in the church, if you will, or in spiritual matters, yet your attention is divided, and therefore you're an enemy of God. You cannot, as we discussed last week, have it both ways. And so they left God out of the picture, and although they're seeking favor from God, he's left out of the picture and he won't bestow upon them those things they're asking for. He calls them to humility. Humility of putting God before themselves, not just in their general approach to life, but in specific approach to life in regard to the very things they decide to do and the very things they're asking for and the reason behind their asking. Humble yourself before God. And the crux of the matter really is seen in verse 7. Why, why are they prideful and not humble? He calls them to submit to God and resist the devil. That's the ultimate problem here. They're friends of the world as we discussed in verses 1 through 5. They're not in submission to God. They're Christians and they may be suggesting that they are indeed in submission to God. James is saying you're not in submission to God. This humility you're being called to is full submission to God. You see back in verse 5, he said, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. And the Scriptures doesn't speak that in vain. It doesn't speak that in a light manner. And we discussed how God's a jealous God. He wants our full attention. The Holy Spirit made to dwell in us through the Word, that is to guide us in God's truth, is, is not something that is supposed to be submitted to partially, and ignored in the parts we don't want to submit to. But there's a jealousy there. God seeks our full attention and devotion. In chapter 1 and verse 25, it continues with the idea of being doers of the word and not hearers. And he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So, I want a blessing from God, I want His favor, but I'm only willing to do part of God's word. Well, it goes hand in hand. You've got to do it fully. You can't hear God's word and decide to do part of it and leave the other out. You've got to fully submit to God. Also in chapter 2 and verses 10 through 12, he kind of addressed this concept as well when he, he mentioned how God is one who said, do not commit adultery and do not murder. And he makes the point now, If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. In other words, that in the negative, obviously, but it would also apply to the positive commands. You cannot decide to abstain from one thing God has told you to abhor and abstain from and then cling on to something else He's told you to abstain and to abhor. And you cannot decide to do something God's commanded and decide you're not going to do something else God commanded You've got to take the law as a whole. They weren't fully submitting to God. And in not fully submitting to God, they were in part submitting to the devil. And again, you can't ride the fence. So if you are submitting to the devil in any way and not resisting the devil, then you are not standing opposed to the devil and you're for the devil. He says, resist the devil. That means to stand opposed to him. Some are simply not resisting the devil. And that's what friendship with the world is. It doesn't necessarily mean that you are all in for worldliness, that you are of the basest of of individuals on this planet, that you are so immoral and that you are caught up in in such terrible things in matters of, of the most blatant sins but it simply means that you're not all in for God. That's friendship with the world. You know, some Christians have trouble being Christians. It's hard for them to be a Christian, and certainly it's challenging. It's not ever going to be super easy. There are sacrifices that we have to make and choices that we have to make that are difficult at times, but for some it's so difficult to be a Christian, and it's because I think they're not submitting To God in their fullest manner and the reason they're not doing that is because they're not always resisting the devil they kind of let their guard down in areas they don't think it's as important so they're not going to be as on guard if you will and and so the devil is not resisted so he doesn't flee from them and and they're in a world of trouble in Ephesians 4 27 Paul said do not give place to the devil." We're not to give place to him in any area. He is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and we're not to give him any kind of slack at all. We're not to give him any kind of room to wreak havoc on our lives. Likewise, Paul in Romans 13, 14 said, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Brethren, sometimes the reason we struggle is because we're just giving the devil opportunity. We're to cut it all off. And someone says, "Well, you're just being too strict. You know, you're 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 being too narrow-minded and, and wanting to cross all your t's and dot all your i's and do it on your own." But that's not the case. This is a part of humility before God to resist the devil in everything. Never to to give an excuse of, "Well, I'm not just I'm just not good enough. My my nature is somehow evil," which is contrary to Scripture in and itself we're to resist him in all things not giving ourselves excuses and opportunities to do what we just want to do that's friendship with the world submit to god and resist the devil draw near to god and he will draw near to you so here's this this irony in this they're praying to god and asking for his favor but they're not receiving it what they're wanting is for god to be near to them to have the benefits Of being God's children, but the problem is they want the benefits of being God's children, but also the benefits of being those who live in the world. You know, there's a lot of pleasures out there that we're trying to stay away from and we have to sacrifice to be God's children. And so, really, Christianity is about weighing the options. Would I rather have the temporary pleasures of this life and enjoy this life in this way? would i rather have the eternal benefits of god's presence being in fellowship with him something that lasts forever and so the christian who tries to juggle things and wants both things at the same time they are going to fail miserably you want god to draw near to you well you've got to draw near to him in Isaiah 59, and verses 1 and 2, it talks about how our sins separate us from Him. It's not that His hand is short, and it's not that His ear is heavy that it cannot hear, but your sins have separated you. Your iniquities have separated you from God. And so, you need to draw near to Him. That's part of that humbling yourself before Him and submitting to Him and resisting the devil. And He gives two facets of this drawing near to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double minded. I think he's talking about generally the same thing here, but he's giving us two perspectives of it. You know, sin has a couple of different perspectives in it. Sin is something we do, we commit with our body, but sin is a spiritual thing. And so it's something we commit with our hearts, with our souls. And so he addresses those two parts of it, I think. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. In other words, here's the outward purification of this and cleansing of this. You've got to stop actively doing what you're doing. In Psalm 26 and verse 6, the psalmist says, I will wash my hands in innocence, so I will go about your altar, O Lord. In other words, I want to approach God at his altar, but in order to do that, I've got to stop sinning. I've got to become innocent stop being guilty of sin I think another place that is helpful is Isaiah 1 and verse 15 when Isaiah records when you spread out your hands God says I will hide my eyes from you even though you make many prayers I will not hear why your hands are full of blood they were they were guilty of injustices in Isaiah's day and they were guilty of of murder and housing murderers and and such and all kinds of iniquity but he's not going to hear them. He's going to hide his eyes because their hands are guilty. So he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. And so cleanse your hands is simply a way of saying, stop doing evil things. You've got to stop taking those actions. You can't continue in sin. And expect grace to abound, Romans 6 and verse 1. Cleanse your hands means stop using your hands as a part for the whole of your body. Stop using your body for sin. Romans 6 is very clear about that. Don't present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but as members of righteousness, instruments of righteousness to God. You know, James addressed this in chapter 1 and verse 21 when he called them to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. He told them to do something first. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. You have to stop sinning. But you know, one of the things that's very important that will allow someone to cleanse their hands of sin and cease to do evil is the purification of their hearts. We talked in chapter 3 about the connection between the heart and the tongue and maturity. In James 3, in verse 2, we might remember he said, We all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. And we discussed what that perfection means. It doesn't mean flawlessness, but it means maturity. Perfect meaning whole, teleos is the Greek word. And the man who's able to bridle his tongue is a mature or perfect or whole man. Able to bridle his whole body. And we made the connection with that, with the idea of the heart. And the fact that when an individual speaks evil things, it is a manifestation that his heart is impure. And so to bridle the tongue, you've got to bridle your heart's content. Because as Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. If your heart is impure, not only will your words be impure, but your actions will be impure. And so it stands to reason, as James indicated in James chapter 3 and verse 2, that if you're able to stop from speaking evil things, that means that you have cleansed your heart and therefore even your whole body will not be participant in sinful things because your heart is not in sinful things. And so you got to purify your heart if you're going to cleanse your hands from sin. That's what repentance is. It's a change of the heart which leads to a change in action. I am not going to sin anymore. I'm going to purify my heart. I'm going to decide to devote myself fully to God and resist the devil in all things. And then I'm not going to, therefore, proceed with sin. He calls them double-minded. That's a word we found in chapter 1 and verse 8, the man who asks and prayer for wisdom, while doubting, is a double-minded man. And it says that he's unstable in all his ways. You're too spirited. You're divided in your interests. And so you've got this idea of wanting to fulfill worldly pleasures, as verses 1 through 5 says, and also seeking God in some ways. But if you're divided, then you're certainly not going to be on the Lord's side. As Jesus said in Matthew six twenty two. "...the lamp of the body is the eye." If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? It's got to be all or nothing. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be single in your focus. And in order to get to that point, they've got to have sorrow for the way they've been living. Lament and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. You've got to have a proper perspective and understanding of worldliness. The fact that you're enemies of God, since you're living this double life, should strike you and cause you to mourn about it. You thought you were right with God, but you're not. You are so far away from being right with God. And that should shake you to your core. It should cause you to fear. It should bring you godly sorrow. As Paul said in Second Corinthians 7, 9, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation not to be regretted. The sorrow of the world produces death. Sin is not something to be happy about. We shouldn't laugh and make a mockery of sin, but take it seriously, realize it's negative and deleterious effects on our souls, that it separates us from God. We die spiritually so that we can have a greater and proper perspective of it and turn from it and resist that devil and draw near to God. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. I want us to notice that. Verse 6 says, He gives more grace... Therefore, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. And so verses 7, 8, and 9 kind of are sandwiched into this call to humility and the favor that God gives upon those who humble themselves before Him. The humility involves a repentance of sin and a submission to God. And note that that humility is before the Lord. Certainly the godly sorrow that leads to repentance is going to be manifest toward those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And even those in the world, they're going to understand there's been a change. And, and that's necessary. We need to make sure they see that. But sometimes people try to show and convince those who are in the church or those who are in the world that maybe there's been a change, but really they're just fooling them. They're pulling a, a quick one on them. But the only one the Lord will lift up, will restore in that relationship, will gain favor before the Lord, is the one who has humbled himself before the Lord, truly repenting. We need to show that penitence before God. And he knows our hearts more than any. And he will know whether we have made a true change. And so he goes from worldliness being friends of the world, to a call to penitence. And in verses 11 and 12 and then 13 through 17, he's going to address some topics that differ from one another in specificity, but follow this general theme of verses 1 through 5 of their worldliness and their need to repent of that worldliness. It was manifesting itself in various ways. And these are certainly things that we need to be on guard about. I do thank you for your kind attention and your interest in spiritual things. And I hope that you do have a blessed day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Pondering Scripture. It may be that you have some questions or comments. If so, don't hesitate to email me at, at gmail.com. I hope you have a blessed day.